0: And if I step on a stage or if I get on a podcast or have any conversation and I think what does Craig think about me? What is how am I going to do here? Do, are the people listening liking what I'm saying? That's a selfish approach and that's draining because then I'm I'm in my head, I'm not present, I'm not here. Instead, if I think how can I connect best with Craig, what are, the, what are the people listening going to get the most value out of? Like if I, how, do, how do I give the stories that are going to create the best experience for listeners?
1: Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I talk with movement enthusiasts to learn who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This is episode number 91, John Beattie, Mountaineering Values and Growth, Climbing Mount Everest and the Seven Summits is a huge accomplishment for John Beatty, but it's only the beginning of the story. He discusses his newest book, The Warrior Challenge, and his reasons for writing it. John shares his experiences from mountaineering and climbing Everest and why climbing is important to him. He reflects on his journey overcoming post-traumatic stress disorder, what he's learned from climbing, and advice for others starting out. John Beattie is an adventurer, author, speaker, and one of few people to climb the tallest peak on every continent, including Mount Everest. He has traveled to 67 countries, survived avalanches and PTSD, and more recently has settled down to enjoy competitive kite surfing. John is also the author of three books, sharing what he's learned through his adventuring and mountaineering. His newest book is called The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit. For more information, go to MoversMindset.com slash 91. And two notes for today. Lots of authors do lots of podcast shows where they're doing the circuit promoting their book. I think you'll find this deliciously rambling conversation with John is not one of those typical podcasts and just in case you're thinking oh no craig's gonna go off endlessly about rock climbing again wait no actually john and i talked mostly about everything else if you enjoy this half as much as we did recording it i hope you'll share it with twice as many of your friends thanks for listening today i'm here with john Beatty. welcome john
0: Hey, welcome yourself.
1: <laughs> I, I just love confusing people by saying welcome, and then they don't know. It, it's strange. Normally, I record in person, I go to your place, and then I say, hey, welcome, and then they look around like, dude, you're at my place. But,
0: uh, that's what I, I felt you. right then. I was like, shoot, I'm on his podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, this, is, this is your podcast.
1: This is your platform. So I'm going to dive right in, and I want to say that I'm going to guess that transitioning from the doer phase, like go seek after the challenge that you set for yourself of climbing those mountains, transitioning from that doer phase to being a person who's doing inspirational speaking, who's writing a book, who has to actually step forward onto the stage figuratively and literally put yourself out there. I'm going to guess that challenge was hard, like life transitioning hard. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about how you navigated from the pretty clear, here's the challenge, here's my next step, here's what I got to do to get there, to like, how do you put yourself out there as like, okay, now I have the answer?
0: (laughs) That's an awesome question to start with. So climbing and speaking and riding all developed together. I was a 22-year-old fresh out of college graduate, and I had this passion for rock climbing. And the more I would go rock climbing, the better stories I had, which then allowed me in turn to give better speeches. And the better the speeches got, the more money I had in order to go on bigger and bigger climbs. <laughs> and I like. It, you could either look at it as an incestual cycle or, or you could look at it as a, a really clearly, <laughs>
1: I'm a call clearly it virtuous
0: defined life. virtuous cycle. Yeah. Uh, or like I did the Tim Ferriss lifestyle of figure out what it is that you want to do for yourself mm-hmm. and then make a really clear plan in order to go make it, it happen. Well, this book, The Warrior Challenge, is that you're right. The first time that since seven summits were climbed, kind of came down as the wise man, so to speak, from the mountaintop and said, here's what I've learned throughout the journey. And the reckoning or the self-confrontation came in the writing process because in all this stuff that I really wanted to say, here's what's real, here are the most badass adventurers I've met and their stories and what makes them good human beings and how do we emulate the, those guys? Are those people? That was where I had to say, "Do I actually live up to this stuff in my in my life?" And that's more. That was more challenging than saying, "What if Craig like doesn't agree with what John says?" Because I already did the work in advance, right? I already I agree.
1: I agree with you, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Makes for a better conversation, but uh, well, maybe maybe some contention would be entertaining.
1: Yeah. One of the so uh if you're within the sound of my voice, go read the book. I don't care whether you're forty-two or twenty-four or fourteen or five, read the book. Um, and I contemplated making a challenge of like, I'll buy the book for the first hundred. No, I'm like, but like really go read the book, people. Um it's it like, is
0: a, it's a rite of passage.
1: It's like it 10 bucks on Kindle. Like, I mean, like yeah. of the, you know the fry guy from Future shut up and take my money. money. <laughs> like that's that's the thing. Um so um Uh one little I I liked okay, uh Ernest Sir, Ernest Shackleton's Adventure. Oh my God. Um, there's Mm. a great book called uh, South with Endurance, which I'm guessing you've read two separate,
0: two separate books. So there's South and then there's also Endurance.
1: I've read them both. Boom! Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize there were two different books. I like I read the book and then I got whichever the other one is, I got the larger coffee table one. And I'm reading the book and I'm like, this sounds really fun. Then I realized I have both of them. I had read them both. If but, but what I was going to say, sorry, was that in your book, you uh, I don't want to say you make Ernie approachable, but you you like bring his accomplishment like within reach of I think you do bring it within reach of somebody who who might be like I don't know I can't figure out what to do with my life I'm you know I'm playing video games, but they might have heard of him or they've heard of famous quotes like it's not what you do to the mountain it's what the mountain does to you like there's so much stuff I think. That is so far out of reach that I think your book does a great job of like, I don't want to say connecting, but like making it like, like, look, here's where you start. Like, here's the first thing that you do. And that to me is the piece that's missing. I, I don't think that certainly not for me that anybody ever said, okay, you know, go do this and then come back and turn the page kind of thing. So that, that I think is what. In my opinion, makes the book succeed mm. and and be a good, um, not just a successful, but also a really high power tool for getting people. You know, and it and it's thin enough that people can read it. And unfortunately, I only read the Kindle version; my paperback isn't here yet. But like, people have have the opportunity to like, this isn't a scary book. So I don't know if there's anything. More well, like,
0: how do you oh how do God. you get okay. <laughs> young men, especially, interested in? learning grit, in learning self-awareness, in learning, stepping up as a human being or choosing their values. Those are pretty intense subjects, even for adults. But I'm like,
1: sense of like is does it work like like if you hand someone a book or or just like you know the the old thing about the teacher appears when the student is ready like it does a book work better than you know clint eastwood gran torino like here's what you should like you know (laughs) i mean like does it does it work better or is it is a book even a more challenging tool because it's not a visual video medium you know like what what are your thoughts on how well does it actually work at like throw it at people
0: good quote great question i think it works better than a video game would or a movie would even mm-hmm. though that would be the more visually stimulating and entertaining thing how many kids leave a video game that they've played and said now i'm changed as a human being <laughs> very few like That's maybe maybe light. they maybe they go and like play a grand theft auto and and shoot up the neighborhood i mean there's real stories about that that were desensitized to violence but if you get into a book like this and you, like if you read this with your son, your grandson, your nephew, the young man in your life, or you read it yourself, this, the principles apply for everybody. It's just geared towards young boys with the, the crazy, amazing adventures that are in here, like Shackleton, like Danny Wei jumping over the Great Wall of China, me yes. climbing the Seven Summits. Like, these are the stories that are role model emblems for young men to live up to. And because they then have these role models... It's life-changing because if you're having a problem with your son or the, the kid in your life, you can say, hey, what would Danny Wade do right now? Yep. Instead, of, instead of saying, of saying, no, 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 you did this, yeah. you did that. Like, there's no, there's yes. no nagging needed when these emblems of these principles, like setting healthy boundaries, choosing great friend groups, avoiding toxic people in your life, choosing equality for all people around, finding your purpose. like These are the most important. Um, Badass, if I can say, stories yes, yes. that are, and that's why it becomes more life changing than a film of those two hours or something a The You just experienced.
1: The, the part of that, you use your words, Craig. Your discussion of boundaries, I thought was a really wonderfully, like, you know, sometimes somebody will say something or, or, or like write it or you'll read it. Somebody will say something and be like, oh, right, duh, I, I have that as a plank that I'm standing on, but it, I can like literally craig can no longer remember what it was like to be 12 gone i mean yeah i have stories that i can tell maybe from 12 but it's not i don't know who that person was anymore so i think laying out these simple like have boundaries that's a pretty simple statement right But nobody that I'm seeing really sets that. And like, as a, like, you need to set boundaries, wait, what? And then like those things build, you know, the only cure for boredom is curiosity. And like, how do you get people interested in, you know, in like big grand topics Well, you show them some interesting piece of it and then they, they get hooked. And I think your distillation or the threads that you've pulled out of your personal journey Mm. you know but i mean like you you must have learned boundaries and and you must have learned you know obviously about human sexuality and these things you've pulled those threads from your life and you've bound them together in or woven them together if you want to beat the metaphor to death you've woven them together into this what i think is a great book so yeah thank you um, you're very welcome thank you
0: for writing you want to you want to dive into like the the boundaries thread there
1: I'm torn between doing a little lighthearted skit about the tandem skydiving sex metaphor, but maybe people just okay, leave it let's. at that. Go read the book, because that, <laughs> I'm like, that's totally it. Like, I had a, a course in college where they did the, you know, the, the sexual metaphor education as a high dive uh, off a, of, you know, like you get in line with the diving board, but the time you get to the top, there's a whole bunch of people behind you. It's like peer pressure. But I'm like, tandem skydiving, tandem skydiving is way better. Maybe we'll leave it like that. Go read the book about tandem skydiving. Let's do the boundaries, because I I really think boundaries, is it, it? Was it the first? Like I think it's one of the early ones that you. It's
0: the, it's the fourth challenge,
1: right? Well, and it, but in the second part of the book, like the are there three? Right. So in can phase, you yeah, the
0: So it's structure of the book is you've got your your weapons mastery, which is right. understanding yourself. You know, it's all in warrior language. So weapons mastery comes first. The second is defensive upgrades, hmm. and that's where your boundaries start coming in. So now you're starting to learn how do others act and react, and how do I connect with them, and then the last phase of the book is choosing your battleground Mm. and that's all about how do you find your purpose how do you how do you live your life in a way that uplifts and uses all these principles that you've learned about yourself and others to live a significant and meaningful life or at least start yourself in that direction as a young man
1: Mm. so let that set for a second before i start talking all over it i i love the power of three and i don't know it's just it's everywhere like Mm. Books in three parts, and like I'm not Three Stooges.
0: There's the Holy (laughs) Trinity. You've got three caballeros. You've got like threes are everywhere, man. The good, the
1: bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. um, Oh my goodness, where shall we go? Let's talk a little bit more about boundaries because part of what I wanted to do was like, yeah, let's do a little bit of like nuts and boltsy. Let's talk about the book a little bit because I think. It's tough for people to find time. Like, if you're not going to read the book, maybe hearing us talk about it for a few minutes, you know, as a chapter mark in our podcast, will help. So, let's talk a little bit about boundaries because that one really leapt out at me as like, oh yeah, I remember when I forgot to do that part or didn't know to do that part. So, what was there a was there a, a moment or like a transition in your life where? You know, you like, oh, yeah, that's where I learned the lesson of boundaries. Is there is that something that you can point to or that you'd want to I point to? I didn't
0: know that it was really cool or okay to say no until I was in my 30s. Like, I didn't know what boundaries were. And the first time that was presented to me, I was like, that's such a silly concept. Little did I know that <laughs> I was just people pleasing and like mm. and giving away my my power and my energy to other to anybody who would ask for anything. I just thought I'm going to give, 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 give. And that resulted in me being completely spent. Um, exhausted. And so like this buddy of mine, I meet in Indonesia. We're climbing Karsten's Pyramid and this tribal war breaks out. There's guys wearing basically loincloths, shooting arrows at each other, and they block the way that we were going to go out, that we were going to hike back out after we had reached the summit. the other direction is the world's largest gold mine. And there's these guys guarding it with machine guns. And we're just pinned there in this valley with thousands of feet of cliffs on either side of us, so we can't move. We just have to like wait this out. So I'm talking with this guy whose name is Wally Sturbu, and he's um, he's got this Romanian accent. And he's telling me that he starts just like we're lying in a tent. And he's like, I'm like, Wally, what's your life been like? You know, just chatting. And he tells me, he just goes into the story saying, I grew up in uh, uh, Romania, communist influences. And one day I said, screw that. And I went and bought seal blubber from a fisherman's market, like the the fat of a seal. Right. (laughs) And I smeared, I smeared it all over my belly and I planned out that I was going to, and he says it this casually, but what he does, he makes this makeshift wetsuit, swims across the icy Danube River, Covered in seal blubber. Reaches Yugoslavia, still smelling like dead seal. Dead seal. <laughs> hitchhikes. <laughs> Hitch, gets in a car and hitchhikes across to the Austrian border where the Yugoslavian guards stopped him, threw him in jail, fat, like caught him. He spends a year in jail. As soon as he gets out of jail, he does the exact same thing because he met a guy in the jail that taught him the pattern of the security guards on the Yugoslavian side. <laughs> side. Gets... Finally, safely into Austria, applies for asylum, gets to Chicago, becomes a Chicago City firefighter, and he said he set boundaries. Right? He said, "I." He's like, in his very, very colorful Eastern European language, he's like, "F that! I'm not living by those." (laughs) (laughs) He said, "That doesn't work for me. That's what I want. That's the standard I'm demanding, and I'm going to make that happen." So that's like the emblem story of this chapter. But then, if we break Mm -hmm. it down, most people think a boundary is just like they react. Like, if I was just like slamming my hand into the camera here, you'd be like, John, that's freaking annoying. Stop. And that's that's one level of boundary setting. And that that counts. But you made a
1: good point about the person who is setting the boundaries. So, if I'm setting boundaries, I can't simply attack you. There's a point that you made in the book about I can't just attack you and say, no, back off, get away. This is my space. This is my boundary. But that I have to have actually sort of, my words, not yours, I have to have earned the right to have set the boundary by like, yes, putting up warning signs, danger, minefield across this line, I punch you in the face. Like, you can't just (laughs) act when they cross the line. So, I that's why I was like, like, the next step would be like,
0: (laughs) the next step would be like, John. It's really distracting for me when you're smashing your hand into the camera, camera, and it makes me feel like this isn't going to be a professional podcast. Could you please stop? Well, now it's like you've done the work yourself. That's how you earn it by by being self aware, saying these are the feelings that are coming up in me, which nobody can argue with. Right. That's impossible to say. No, that's you. Can't, I like, I could not say.
1: Yeah, Craig, you're it, wrong. It, it you're shouldn't
0: make weird. you feel that way. It shouldn't make <laughs> you feel irritated. You yeah. can't do that. And so then that's like medium level. I call it heroic boundary setting because I like, name it after video games, like Halo series. Yes. So you've got the heroic and then legendary boundary setting would be um, to state what sort of consequence that would come. Like, John, if you don't stop smacking the camera, then we're going to have stop, to stop the right? show and I'm going to stop and we're not going to do this anymore. Um, and if you can get all of those components in here's what it makes me feel here's the action I would prefer instead and here's the consequence if that doesn't happen that's a healthy boundary that's mm-hmm. what Wally did and instead of waiting until we're like 30, 40, 50 which is what most people do to learn here's how to set a healthy boundary why don't we just show 10 to 16 year olds here's how it's done so These they don't boundaries. have to struggle like we did
1: yeah amen once more louder for those in the back uh, <laughs> i love that (laughs) i'm not like oh that was boring i'm done it was like i got 90 things i want to talk about and i'm i promise myself i'm not going to geek out about mountain climbing but i want to go a little bit toward mountain climbing (laughs) what i want to say is what the heck is it about outdoor mountain climbing that is so transformative and i have i have an idea and i i think it's that the you know, like I follow five, eight. Okay. That's, that's the kind of climber I'm. I'm not a big wall climber. Um, but for me, it is so mind, like necessarily mindful and so focusing that I think it's a physiological need of our brains to get into the flow state. Everybody's talking about flow state. If you haven't yeah. heard about flow state, Oh my God, what rock are you under? And I think that's a physical need. And I think mm-hmm. rock climbing and I think you can do it indoors but i think there's something about outdoors like is there a centipede is that a snake am i gonna get you know there's something about it that it makes you just like go right into that flow state into that mindful practice so my, my actual question is what do you think it is if anything about mountain climbing that is so magical that takes that you know that takes you away takes you right to the nut of figuring out who you are
0: there are Maybe. Well, we love the number three. So let me give you three of the, my favorite elements of climbing. Yes. And the first one, you are absolutely right. Flow state. You have to be there present. Your, your body is screaming at you. Your primal fear factor is screaming, saying, this is life and death. <laughs> Pay it freaking Pay attention. attention right now. You have to be here and now, which is an element of flow. flow. It's being present. So it forces you into being present. The next thing that I really love about climbing is that it is my church. Uh, I've never like jived with going into religious institution buildings, but I still subscribe to many of the beliefs in those buildings. But I find that my, my church structure is the mountains Mm. what's been like those are my sanctuaries or my my temples to go out into the wilderness and see creation that's that's a spiritual experience to be standing above the cloud looking down at the curvature of the earth and like it's it's a phenomenal place to be so there's two and then the third one that i really love is being in a group of people that together are digging deep like, we're all on this thing of am I enough? Do I have what it takes? Can these other people help me get through this? Like, we're all on the same goal, purpose, mission. And we all have to bring out a better, bigger self in order to succeed. And that's a really cool place to be.
1: Sometimes I just shut up. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. I think that's very insightful. I'm also on my own personal journey of learning, so I'm like, oh, I can't wait to listen to this again. (laughs) What? And I also, I, I tend to do random shit. That's just Craig's style. But was there anything that was on your mind uh, oh, by the way, anybody out there listening, John is awesome. Like w- it took us weeks to get this scheduled and then I don't know, get like called onto a plane and then we rescheduled and like, thanks for taking the time, of, like sticking with my craziness to like get it scheduled and be here. Um,
0: thanks for having me on. It's really a joy.
1: <laughs> where was I going with that train of thought? Oh, was there anything on your mind on your way here? Like, you know, weeks, days, hours, moments in advance. Was there anything on your mind you're like, oh, I hope I really get to talk about, you know, obviously other than the book, but like, is there anything that you were thinking that you wanted to get to?
0: I wanted to, I want to create that same experience with you in the best way we can. That same mountaineering experience of like, let's, let's give something of real value to mm-hmm. people listening. Let's talk about mountaineering. If you want to talk Everest, I'm more than happy to go there. But more than anything, I show up in that flow state as best I can, present here with you. And that's that's my intent in coming to this. So
1: You have succeeded. Um, there is, I almost wrote it down. I don't remember. There's a quote. Somebody, I think it was a radio DJ. It's on your website. It says something like, oh, I should look it up. It's it, somebody famous. It's like if, you know, two really famous um, oh, it's a, if Tony speaker.
0: Robbins. If Tony and Robbins and Bear, Bear Grills had a baby. Bear Grills. Yeah. If Bear <laughs>
1: Grills and Tony Robbins had a baby, that's John. And I, I, love I, that I couldn't one. remember Grills' name. I'm like, what's the other person's name? Yes. And I, I, I kind of suspected that that was legit before we started talking about Yeah, totally legit well how do you manage to keep your energy level up like to show up if people haven't if anybody has never experienced like having a really intense conversation with someone especially while being recorded with lights this takes a lot of energy to do and I'm, I'm both bitching and i'm commiserating saying like you know this too but like how do you find the energy to do that
0: i think about the individual instead of myself if i think like when I when I give my keynote speeches before COVID started, I was speaking to started with a few dozen students and then it grew to like the last speech I gave before shutdowns was 3000 hmm. corporate folks. And if I step on a stage or if I get on a podcast or have any conversation and I think, what does Craig think about me? What is how am I going to do here? Do, are the people listening, liking what I'm saying? That's a selfish approach and that's draining because then I'm I'm in my head, I'm mm-hmm. not present, I'm not here. Instead, if I think how can I connect best with Craig? What are the, what are the people listening going to get the most value out of? If I I wanted to go into that boundaries topic because I truly believe that's one of the most important subjects that any human being can can learn. And how do how do I give the stories that are going to create the best experience for listeners? Instead of Focusing on here's what I want to get out of this or here's my little needy like Monkey brain saying John needs to have community and culture, which is really what that is, right? Like where does John fit into the community and we all have that voice if I step out of that and say How do I help build the community regardless of if I'm in it or not? Ironically that actually puts you into the community right so so it's that same thought to create energy of by by not worrying whether or not what i'm saying is like giving me validation it actually brings me into the energy to yes. give value yes
1: i'm nodding vigorously i don't know which the, the video flips <laughs> between speakers but i'm nodding vigorously and you know you can see me yeah and i, I i'm like yeah
0: like you can do this at the dinner table. You're sitting at the dinner table and you notice that oh, everybody's quiet right now. It's just another standard normal dinner. I'm kind of bored right now. Well, that little thought, I'm a little, I'm a little bored right now. Or, uh, like this is just a ho-hum. That's about you. Hmm. How do you bring out in your family members like the, the, the feelings, the thoughts that are going through their minds how do you bring out their stories of what really made them tick today? Because in that moment when everybody's quiet, they're all thinking yes. that same exact thing of like, I'm not really getting like they're all there. So be the one that's courageous enough to step out of that, open up that conversation and lead your family or the people that you're eating that meal with mm. um, in, in finding out who they, who they really are. Take the attention off yourself and you'll find energy by doing so.
1: I don't do uh, keynotes or speaking in front of large groups. And I'm my my this is how this is how the show works. Craig has ideas, I connect two together, and I ask a question. <laughs> so, do you use? what role, I'm gonna say? What role does asking questions play when you're giving presentations to like large groups? You know what I mean? I
0: that's my biggest frustration with a speech is that most speeches are a discourse. Mm-hmm. If you go back to when Plato and Socrates would give speeches. There was instant questioning during the discourse. And you, ha- the guy had to know his speech so well that he could then get back on track or absorb the question back into his Retour, speech, right? right? Now we don't have that as a part of speeches. So I have, you know, having studied rhetoric in university, I, I that's where I learned that this was like how speeches used to be. Mm-hmm. Now I will try and do the same thing as much, I, as, much as I can. And I'm like, asking for the audience to call back i'm like like i'm like if that makes sense to you everybody say hoorah and then like you have a thousand people that Mm -hmm. are like hoorah and they you know they get into it and then suddenly there's kind of this like oh i don't want to miss the next time he calls something out Mm -hmm. and i'm like if that makes sense to you or like if, if you're on board with this tap the person's chair in front of you with your foot and they're like oh okay right. then, you know they're like i don't even know i had a foot right now cuz they're in their brain and then i'm like right. put them in their body and then they like tap the little the leg of the chair in front of them and then everybody's like getting jolted so i'm i'm bringing the audience physically involved and having them shout back call back and bringing audience members up on stage sometimes i'll even ask questions of the audience beforehand so i can um, bring those up on stage uh, and mm. deliver like personalized information so when i when I deliver a keynote, it's very much a customized conversation as much as can be uh, versus a I am now standing delivering the information I've gained yes. in my life and yeah
1: I'm standing behind the podium. I love that you use the word conversation um, I'm all about I'm all up in that. I stopped calling what I'm doing interviews, like just because I'm like, eh, I don't like that word. It sounds like mm. it's too one way, and I really enjoy just talking to people. I just I, this all started for me when I was I discovered, much to my pleasant surprise, that I was just having cool conversations with people, and then eventually it was like, you know, people might want to hear those conversations. Okay, so that you know, it all got out of I totally got out of control. But
0: so hey. let's go there then. You say you're five eight climber. What drew you to climbing? And then let's talk parallels between like what drew me to going to Everest? Like what are the, what are the differences there?
1: For me, it was just stupid curiosity is what drew me mm. there. I, you know, the bootstrap story is um, my friend, Mike, the guy I was talking about before we pressed record. So Mike, uh, it, it if you yeah open up wikipedia if you're not a climber so mike mike leads 510 you know falls off 511 kind of things he's pretty damn good and i call him the rope gun so he just goes first i'm i clean i'm second so i didn't know climbing from a hole in the ground i mean i'd have been to a rock climbing gym once or twice and i found him on facebook uh, maybe six years ago and i was like hey i haven't seen you years what are you up to and he had a little transit van and he was in boulder and doing the dirt bag thing and he's like on Facebook one day, and he's like, "Oh, hey, what's up?" And I'm like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm, I'm dirt bagging in Colorado." Quick, you know, Wikipedia. What the fuck, dirt bagging in Colorado? Oh, <laughs> I'm like I didn't know rock climb. You know, turns out he went to college in upstate New York, and he like hung out in um, at the Gunks. Well, uh, yeah, but north of the Gunks is the 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 Dax At the Adirondacks is where he yep. like cut his teeth in the Adirondacks. Anyway, so uh, he says to me, "You know, we had known each other from martial arts, and we hadn't seen each other in five years." And he goes, "You should come out and climb sometime." And me, I went. When? Like, I'm at a little type, when? He's like, so all this, he's been saying that to all of his friends for like a year and nobody does it. And he's like, well, uh, I got like a job for two weeks. I'm, you know, helping somebody refinish furniture. And how about two weeks from now or whatever it was, three weeks from now? And I'm like, okay, you know, and like, yeah. that was the end of our chat, you know, like, well, let's chat tomorrow. So... You know, on your website, you have a section about like actually going to the mountains. That's like, you can do it virtually. You can listen along. You can see like gear lists. You had a photo of a gear, exploded gear list. And I was like, I got shivers because I did that (laughs) with Mike. We did like exploded gear list. I'm bringing this. I'm bringing that base. The whole thing because I didn't know shit. I went and bought a pair of rock climbing shoes. I bought a harness. I bought like an ATC and I went to the climbing gym literally every other day for three weeks or whatever it was. People at the rock climbing gym on the third day were like, "You're not kidding around." I'm like, "No, I don't want to die." <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't know this guy very well. I basically had like Gumby gear, everything's shiny. I got on an airplane with like one backpack. I mean, it wasn't was not an expedition by any stretch, but basically got on an airplane with just my backpack that I checked. And, you know, the shoes on my feet and my rock climbing shoes and met up with Mike, you know, in a parking lot. And then we just spent about three weeks just, I mean, roadside cragging to start, like, learn how to, you know, jug up a rope and learn how to tie some knots and all this stuff. Like, just, like, get in the pool. Awesome. So, I just went at it with, oh, that looks interesting, which is how I do everything. And that, it just, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I didn't understand the level of engagement, like, or or, like... You know, like shit gets like, you know, shit gets real, you know, halfway up some yeah. knob, you're like, oh, fuck, because rock climbing only goes one direction, like kids. Yes, there's no, <laughs> it doesn't go the other way. If the guy who has you on belay has that thing rigged up, you know, it's like strapped at the belay point, there's no, there's no down, you know, and like I've fallen, you know, 50 feet off the ground. I fall off crap and like got swung off the route and now I'm facing a blank cliff, you know, and I'm like there for half an hour while I figure out how to get, you know, going again. And I've had like other climbers wrap down and go, Hey, are you Craig? I'm like, yeah, that's me. You know, like, okay, Mike, what's enough? You're okay. Like say, maybe I'm unconscious. So for me, I had no clue what I was getting into. I got into it with a guy that I trusted and like, he's really good at setting protection and stuff. And for me, I was just like, I don't want to say it scratched an itch, but like that thing we were talking before about the flow state and about learning about yourself. I didn't know that's what I was going to get. I didn't realize that was what I really needed at that point in my life. And, but boy, did it work out well. And like, we've done a bunch of climbing. It's all like multi-pitch, you know, we wish we could climb in real places. We go to like the red in Kentucky. I haven't been to Red Rocks in
0: the River Gorge.
1: I've been to Henderson, by the way. I have family in Henderson. So I was just like, whoa, you know, this is just so, so like so close, like spatially, but So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So those Uh, little moments,
0: (laughs) those little moments of, oh, that's interesting, I think, are so important to learn to listen to. You made the absolute right choice of like, oh, that's interesting, and then I'm gonna go try it. (laughs) Right. Most most people are like, oh, that's interesting, but I could never, or I'm Mm -hmm. not a climber, or my upper body strength isn't enough. Or if it's like playing guitar, but I don't have a sense of rhythm. Or if it's dancing, oh, but I don't know how to keep rhythm. Yes. Or if it's whatever, there's always this, but I'm a beginner or I would look foolish kind of voice. Mm. And there's such beauty. I like, I call it loving the idiot phase. <laughs> like... When you know you're going to be an idiot at something and you're going to look like a fool. like, that, But that's every moment in life. Somebody's phenomenally better than you. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, I climbed Everest. But then while I'm going, there's... Uh, uh, lapkarita sherpa who's climbed it 22 times mm-hmm. right there next to him i'm like well i'm a total beginner newbie novice in relation to him mm-hmm. and like even olympic gold medalists on the, v- the sport that happens right after them they're a total newbie no- novice right. right so like all of us <laughs> are beginners and if you can learn to love that joy uh like find joy in the moments of proverbially stepping on the toes of the dancer that you've just started this <laughs> thing with or knowing you're going to be hanging on the side of a cliff for 30 minutes and like other people wrapping down like monkeys (laughs) (laughs) baboons like flying down with little bananas and hey you Craig like if you can learn to laugh at those moments and say this is freaking awesome I'm like I'm loving that I have no clue what I'm doing and you listen to those moments that's interesting that's where the joy of life starts coming from because you start to, to expand who you are as a human being and you learn what you're actually made of versus what your brain says you, it thinks you're made of because mm. your brain is not you. You are not the thoughts going on in your mind. That is not who you are. You're the person who can see those thoughts. You can watch those thoughts. You're the watcher, the seer, uh, the witness. There's all these different names for this person. But if you can s- say, "Oh, there that is, there's that little inner critic that – yeah, the that john self-talk. has that craig has the self-talk and say i'm going for this thing because it just sounds really mm-hmm. interesting or freaking awesome yeah you'll grow i
1: yes mic drop except we're not done <laughs> yeah you want know, to talk about noob mike i love the guy to death he's awesome mike pitched out i think we did it in seven pitches the first slab in boulder Right? So you know, the, the, I I was like scared out of my wits, and, and we did it. Uh, the, it's in a state park. The park closes at dusk. We started at dusk. <laughs> we basically climbed it at night. It was the first rock I'd ever touched outdoors. It was like day one. Was let's go up the first slab and boulder. And we pitched it out with trad gear. And Mike was like, hey, "It was sketchy as fuck because there's not a place to set trad gear in that rock." It's Just if, if people who know what I'm talking Blank. about, like, yeah, you, you pitched out the first slab. I mean, there are parts where I was like wigged out on the fourth pitch at like 11 p.m. And 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 Mike's just like. I got to love him for being here because, you know, Mike's sitting at the belay point under the stars looking at the sky. And then that was that we did do something a little sketchy, like the education on how to rappel occurred at the top of the slab, you know, at like two in the morning, you know, there's an 80 foot wrap off the back. It's It's dark and you've
0: got headlamps. It's baby,
1: right? It's like headlamps. I don't know which is, I personally think, random question, do you prefer climbing in the dark? I prefer like climbing in the dark is much more. Uh, it feels more comfortable because the, oh my God, terror zone is only as far as your headlamp reaches. There's only eight, you know, like I can reach six feet and that's it. And there's nothing else. And you look over the edge with your headlamp and like, I don't see anything. You know, you're just like, yeah, there's nothing down there. It's no danger.
0: (laughs) I got chills when you said that because some of the most magical moments of my life have been waking up at one o'clock in the morning, crawling out of a sleeping bag into 10 degree Fahrenheit weather, Mm -hmm. you know, well below zero and pulling those icy boots on my feet, hating every second of gearing up. But then when I step outside, there's the entirety of the Milky Way galaxy extending above me, and I start taking those steps through the crunchy snow. I've tied my knot to my rope team, and we start moving through this terrain that all you see is the silhouettes of the Black Mountains against the backdrop of the inky purple Milky Way galaxy. And you're like, I'm walking in space right now, and... I'm with these people who I love and care about and will throw my life. I am throwing my life on the line for them and they're doing the same for me. I love those moments at night when you just see the distance of your headlamp in front of you and it's just, it's the story of life. You can only see as far as that headlamp goes. And once you get to where that headlamp goes, you see where the headlamp goes next and that's it. And who knows what's going to be around the next corner. And that is, those are such spectacular moments that I just live for.
1: Perspective. I, I hear you that I hear you talking about the idea of perspective. I have a habit of taking, uh, photography from airplane windows, but not of the ground. I love to catch aerial phenomenon and like every once in a while I get on a flight that's, you know, flying West during sunrise. So you get like the whole and that hint of the curvature of the earth that you can get from an airplane or, um, if you, if like, you know, if you're li- people listening, if you ever get the chance to go somewhere where what they call dark sky, um, where there's no light pollution around, that's difficult. But if you can, you know, make the journey, it's not quite the same. I'm, I'm like being the fragile. It's not quite the same as being on Everest. However, <laughs> it is close when you see that, you get an idea of what our ancestors would have lived with every day. And um, in some of the... I don't know, history or some of the things that I've read about cultures, they never got like, nobody sees the New York city skyline after you've been there a million days. Like, it's just like, yeah, whatever. Nobody looks, Mm -hmm. but everyone always looks at the night sky. Like you you do not ever get used to that level of grandeur. And astronauts say similar things about once you've been to space and you look down at the marble, you are a different person. You can't go back.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that's a big part of, that's probably the thing about big mountaineering um, mixed terrain, except I don't really like ice. I like, I don't want to climb ice. No, thank you. But that's the thing about mountaineering. I think it has called to me the experience of being in that environment, Um, not so much the climbing part of it, which is why I'm, I'm not doing it, but yeah, perspective, just because I love to like, see how maneuverable we are on our skateboards. Where is that lesson of perspective in the book?
0: I do talk about climbing Everest in, uh, towards the end of the weapons mastery. So at the end of the first section, um, and my story on climbing Everest was my first bottle of oxygen was leaking. And fewer than 100 people have ever successfully climbed Everest without oxygen because it's lethal. Like, human bodies (laughs) don't—it's kind of important to be able to breathe. I don't know if you know this, (laughs) but— So I'm climbing, and my my oxygen leaks. I didn't know it was leaking, but it was so cold that the little rubber washer that created an effective seal between the regulator and the oxygen bottle had cracked. And it was leaking oxygen through that. Burned through one bottle— my Sherpa says, hey, stay put. I'm going to go up higher. Get another bottle. He's gone for about 15 minutes. I'm alone in the middle of the Himalayan sky. Flick the, can- flick the, uh, the headlamp off. And on my jacket, which is bright red, I'm looking at it, and it's, it's got these little red patches, like these really big bright red features on it. And they start changing colors. It's nice. changing from red to gray <laughs> and i'm like that's not normal that's that not shouldn't normal. be my i know that my jacket it doesn't change color it's not a 1980s hypercolor j ja- mm-hmm. like jacket it's not the thing and trying to pull my feet out of the ground and i can't i just don't have the energy my i can feel a line of cold like impossible cold start, starting to go up my arms and legs towards my core like that's just not none of this is good stuff my vision was going out i was losing the ability to process colors Finally, I see Nuru come back down. is the name of my, the, the guide, the Sherpa I was with. Uh, awesome guy. He comes back down, and he's like all enthusiastic, trying to breathe some life into me with his spirit. And he's just like, John, sir, John, sir, I have air. I have air. You know, just <laughs> like, here it is. And we screw it in. I take a breath. And when I do, that jacket turns right back to red, and I feel that line go in the reverse direction down my limbs, and I'm able to walk again. Let's keep climbing. Cool. So now we're up at this feature called the balcony. So we've been on the mountain for six weeks already. um, And it's harrowing in that by now, seven people had passed away. During that whole season, nine people had passed away. I came across the eighth gentleman a few hours after that first bottle of oxygen ran out and he was on his last breaths um, and I, I didn't everybody had left him for dead. And he had kind of this gasp moment back to life when I came across him and I did everything I could to try and save him or revive him, but none of it worked. And so then I had this crosshair moment of, am I going to climb up to get to the top or try and get this person down? Um, uh, but he was, he was already gone and I knew, and if you study anything about Everest. Even though this sounds like a really cold decision, um, you cannot physically carry that much weight. Like it takes dozens and dozens people. of people to be able to move 180-ish pounds. Yeah, an incapacitated climber. Yeah. An incapac- it, it just was a. It was a lost cause. And had I tried to do that, I would have put those 11 other climbers' lives at risk. Had I tried to say, like, "Come on, guys, let's get this guy down," it would have needlessly endangered other people's lives. And so the compassionate decision for life and for humanity was to keep climbing, to keep doing my thing. So I, I climb up to the summit, but it changed everything about what the climb meant for me. I mm. wanted it to be a thing where it was like, yeah, I'm awesome. Look at like how great I've done climbing Mount Everest and I'm a hero now. Instead, it became a, a journey of several months afterwards of even years afterwards of dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and that's what taught me vulnerability finding the right people to share what's really going on with you and to to process through traumas um, that's where the the idea of like what is what does all this really mean come from and through that processing back to like with the very first question you asked me that's what uh, like mountaineering has has changed or caused in me or that's 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 who i am and what i feel like i can now say through all that processing of this now i can say here's why i'm confident in what i've put in this book through that entire journey to healing because it's not just post traumatic stress it's post-traumatic growth if you really go through the process of seeing what has happened clearly eliminating the mental blocks that were created that that caused post-traumatic stress in the first place You can, like if somebody out there has gone through something traumatic, you can heal from it. And just like tearing down your muscles in your thigh or your bicep, if you're working out by healing from that super traumatic thing that went on for you emotionally, you can come out bigger and stronger than you ever were beforehand, but you have to be able to have the courage to go through the work.
1: I think that's a deep insight that, you know, what, Life breaks everyone, and some people are stronger at the broken places. When they heal, is mm. Hemingway maybe? But I think that that it takes a lot of strength just to share that story. I, I would, I would imagine. So I, I, thank you for sharing that, and it is a pers- It brings a perspective to the book. I think, I think it brings a perspective to the book that's important in some ways. Like I said, I didn't. I didn't study it. I can't write a dissertation on it. But when I read through it, I, I just had this vision of like trying to imagine twelve-year-old Craig reading the book, and I'd be like, "Whoa, that's awesome!" Like I, I could just see myself responding to it, to like the epicness of all of the stuff in the book. But then from my current perspective, I was like, "Yeah, I mean that's pretty fucking epic." But like this is there's really, well, this is like really cool, cool, stuff in here. Um, so I, I really. You know, applaud your ability to mix that too. Like, you know, it's it's like a peanut butter sandwich. Like, yeah, there's whole grains on here, but like there's jelly. You know, so like it, it go, you <laughs> yeah. know, like it works. Like, spoonful of sugar, the medicine goes down, kind of thing. So, I really think it's approachable. And I didn't mean to turn it into a fawn over your book session, but I think, my personal opinion, people tend to judge someone who's done something spectacular because. That's, it's spectacular what you do accomplish, the Seven Summits—and then turn it into a book. And I'm like, no, this isn't just a dude who wrote a cool book. This is this is actually a really good book, um, like with a capital G, and it accomplishes good in the world. Thank you. So I, I'm ex, I'm kind of excited to like. Ooh, I, I want to keep my eye on this. I want to see how how this works out. And I want to. Now I'm like, I need to buy a couple copies and give them to something and people I can think of. <laughs> Please <laughs> do give a copy too. <laughs> so I'll get on that. What do you? I like. I had obviously read about the I. I I'm stumbling because I think saying PTSD diminishes the the depth. Like, like post-traumatic stress disorder is like a major thing, and I think yes. when you give it like a, a handy acronym, you know, like mm-hmm. it's like sad seasonal afflictive disorder. I'm like seasonal affective disorder is like a serious thing. People wind up committing suicide in the holidays. But when we call it sad, it gets like diminished. And I'm not equating PTSD and sad, but when you just when one just says PTSD, it makes it sound like a, yeah, it's the nice neat little box. So I think you unpacking the experience that led, the experience that was the trauma that led to you having that disorder, I think that makes it so much more clear how important it is for people to realize a PTSD is not a little simple acronym that is a major issue that it is, I, I think it's a society we've gotten past believing it's just warfighters who suffer from PTSD. It's not just people who are first responders and, and firefighters and stuff, that it is a like a generic affliction that any human being can mm-hmm. suffer when faced with trauma. So I, I, th- well, I, was I, really... I
0: appreciate so much that you bring that up. I really truly do because it's become this trite term that a lot of people use and it steals from those who actually are dealing with it right. when, when you're like, I stubbed my toe on the corner of the bed. Now I have a little PTSD when I'm walking around the bed. Yes. Like, uh, that, that really actually devalues yes. Yes. what yes. it actually is. And so, like, PTSD is being locked into your fight or flight state. This is a short-term adrenaline burst that is meant to save you from when a saber-toothed tiger attacks. And so you're right. either going to fight that tiger back, which gives you this incredible surge of energy. You're going to run like hell as fast as you can. There's also faint, um, like yeah, pass play out dead. Right. or freeze is another one, right? Play dead. And so these are, these are the defense mechanisms that we have that are only meant for very short-term bursts. But climbing Everest, now I've got it. I see this guy. He's dead. I've got an 8,000-foot drop on one side, 10,000-foot drop on another. I'm in my head over this, what just happened with this guy, over and over. My own oxygen is leaking. Yeah, shortly so I'm shortly after thinking,
1: a serious crisis. Right
0: I'm, I'm about to die. And the second bottle is also leaking. I left that important little tidbit out of the story that <laughs> <but laughs> I get to the top, and, and that, that state of fight or flight, which I was in for those 36 hours of summit day, that never stopped and so that's what happens when someone has true post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, there's post-traumatic stress, which is just like, hey, I saw this car accident or I was in a accident or I, I, it, it could be caused by something as what look, may look like small, like a home break-in or, or a, a rape or a yeah. like even seeing something on, on the news. But that
1: can shock your
0: foundations. This whole, this whole spectrum of horrible like a rape or like seeing something on the news. Like I saw something like you, any of that can cause it depend on, depending on the human being. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're absolutely right that anybody can um, experience post-traumatic stress disorder in a, in a real way, but it's also not to be taken lightly when we have this cute little acronym for it, PTSD, because that person, if they're depressed, moody, angry, it's not their personality, it's not them who's wanting to do that. Like they don't want to be there. They're in a state of their adrenal adrenal glands are so squeezed and taxed and exhausted mm. that they don't know how to get out of that. I have to fight something or run from its place. Yeah.
1: Um, I try, I don't know if I succeed, but I try to find things with each person that I'm talking with to try and, like, I don't want to say throw people a bone, but, like, to give them, like, yeah, here's something you can go do. And I'm not going to ask you for, like, what to do with PTSD. What you should mm-hmm. do if you feel that you've been traumatized is you need to find professional, serious resources, which, mad yeah. props, by the way, there's, like, a lot of cool resources in the book. It's not like It's not a comic book. Like, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's...
0: There are it's, comics in it to make it exist. Yes, but it but is... But it is not a comic book in that it has nutrition. It has depth to it. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well spoken. But I was um, going to say one of the things that jumped out at me was a, a i think it was a block about the 527 breathing i'm a big fan mm. of of breathing certain kinds of breathing patterns and meditations and uh, it jumped out at me because i i know enough about the activate activation of the sympathetic nervous system um, that doing those kinds of breathing is like an immediate set of grab handles that you can get a hold of to affect your own nervous system reaction like that. So just for fun, can you like unpack the 527 breathing exercise?
0: Yeah. So I interviewed a woman named Mithu Steroni, who's a PhD in neuro everything. She's got got like multiple (laughs) PhDs in all all the neuros. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a book book called Stress Proof. And a lovely, lovely human being, just the sweetest, gentlest like demeanor but she just brings the punch and the power. I'm like, that's mm. who I want to have as a resource for self-awareness. So I, I call her up and she's grac- gracious enough to chat. And she tells me about this thing that Navy SEALs do when they go underwater and they f- are facing this, this same sense of fight or flight. And I don't know if you know this, but Navy SEALs can like warm up their bodies by controlling their breath like if they're sitting in icy water, kind of like Wim Hof method, they can, mm. they can warm themselves. And that's really the power of the breath. So five, two, seven breathing, learn from Methusterone because she tells me about what the Navy seals do in order to calm themselves when they go underwater. So here's what it is. It's breathe in for f- five counts, hold your breath for two counts, and then exhale for seven counts. It's really important that at the bottom of your breath, after your longest exhale, that you don't hold your breath there because that activates energy that, that says, I have to take a gasp. I have to like, start the fight or flight because <clears throat> I, I need to breathe. So it's just simply in. One, two, three, four, five. Hold. One, two. Exhale. One, two, three, four, five, six seven and then inhale five and if you do that three to five times if you especially if you take note of here's what i felt like beforehand yep whoa here's what i feel like afterwards there's actually a massive calming centering difference for a simple exercise and technique like that it is so powerful powerful
1: i think it I, i thank you i love that because I've talked about in the past square breathing, mm-hmm. which some people learn in martial arts context. And you you basically go around in a count that's symmetrical. So it's like in five, pause five, out five, pause five. And that's challenging. And it leads to a completely different result. And so they're like different tools. So I, I think it's great to see, I don't want to say it's a simple tool because it's really a powerful tool, but it's great to see such a simple tool included in the book. And, you know, I, I, I blasted through that section. I'm like, oh yeah, five, two, but, you know, I went right by it. But I'm like, that's a really interesting thing to include. So I really like that as a tool for people it's, in my opinion, better than things like when you get mad, count to 10, which to me is mm-hmm. like, and guess what you'll be doing while you're counting Holding 10. your breath. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're like, I'll be making it worse. One, two, three, four, four, six,
0: seven, nine, <laughs> seven. Gosh, yeah. it didn't and work. Then,
1: yeah, it's just not, you spent 10 seconds thinking about how you were going to do the thing you shouldn't do. So I, I like the, I'm a big fan of breathing exercise. I think that's a good one so that people can so try. So this
0: thread started from what tools can somebody use if they think they've been traumatized? And that was a critical part of the therapy process of learning this square breathing, which is a simplified version of that five-two-seven breathing square. And I would hold my, she would have me hold my finger, lift it yeah, up for draw. four breaths, draw <laughs> an actual square. One, two, three, four. I was like, why do I have to use my hand? She's like, just, just shut up and do it basically. Yeah. But in a very kind way, it's like, well, that puts you in your body and it gives you something mm. to focus yes. on. Okay, yeah. great. So one, two, three, four, Over, one, two, three, four. Down, one, two, three, four. And um, the the bottom one, again, is what creates that sort of sense of stimulus, which she, in that case, wanted because she wanted to kind of find what my triggers were in a controlled setting. Mm -hmm. So that was very wise of her to say, we're going to hold on that down breath to see how John reacts to these impulses of fight or flight.
1: Outstanding. Uh, It never... You know, some days I'm like, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this podcasting thing. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of... And, and then other days I'm like, when I'm recording a conversation, I'm like, yep, I remember why I do this. Never stopping. <laughs> yeah. What? And then I, I always want to just like press stop. Because what could I possibly say that's better than what we just said? But I like the metaphor of going to the well. Every time I get a bucket of clear spring water, I'm just like, oh, there's probably another one in there. What, you, you obviously you've done a lot of reviews, so you're really good at this stuff. So how about, what's something that people get wrong about you? So if I asked your friends maybe, or your, people who know you not too well, mm. what's something they would say about you, but that you actually feel is wrong?
0: I would probably say that I'm more, I'm more like them than they think.
1: Mm.
0: There's this thought that like, oh, uh, he climbed Everest. He gives keynote speeches. He writes books. And there's this like, well, ladi freaking dodge, John. You got all your <laughs> all your shit together, don't you? No, no, no. I still wake up some mornings and say I don't really want to get out of bed. I still get down. Coronavirus sent me for a hell yes. of a loop. Like I got in down in the dumps. There was a couple weeks that I was drinking too much during it when it started, and like go through the same stuff that. A lot of people do, and I've figured out a little bit about how to deal with it and figure out my, what works for my own, my own life, and I, I still want to learn from others. And that's like my main, that's the thing that I actually credit with. People are like, how do you get all this stuff done? How do you go climb all these mountains, and how do you write these books? Honestly, I try and learn from others as much as I can, and I put myself into a beginner mindset. Yes. So I'm, I guess I'm just more like other people than people think. I just maybe have a different story that led me to the same place everybody else is.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. We've talked about, like, I'm I'm always thinking, like I'm always imagining a bunch of people sitting behind me, you know, behind glass and they're like screaming and banging on the glass, but I can't hear them. And I'm just like, I'm trying to think of what you want to know. (laughs) Are there any other so the torment mean saying here here is a, a two for you pick which one you want to answer? What the heck do you do when you're stuck in a
0: Come tent? Come on, two for two for it up. We'll see two if I can up. answer. What the heck do both? you do when
1: you're stuck on a on a portal ledge in the middle of a wall for 2 days waiting out weather? What do you do to keep from going insane when you're stuck in the tent like that? And also, what are some books that you've read that you think people who are interested in our current conversation they should go look at? Two completely different questions.
0: For for the first one portal edge on the side of a wall is the same exact thing of what you do when you're in quarantine truly when you're just stuck and you can't move and you're just there because it's a shitstorm outside what do you do you accept that that is the time for rest and then you put your mind at ease you quit worrying about what needs to be done because just as much a part of taking action of doing stuff is not doing stuff, relaxing, resting, and recovering. If you don't have the energy from your recovery and your rest, then you will not be effective at action. They're the same thing. They're, it's all the climbing. Mm. For the few books that I would recommend, one of the best books that I read this year was Essentialism. It's all about removing what is extraneous from your life and what, what you think you might need, but you actually don't. And when I when I saw the cover and when I heard the title, I was like, "Oh, there's this guy who like probably lives in some tiny home and like li- <laughs> out in the woods things, right? <laughs> owns owns like twelve items and you know <laughs> one of these kind of stories." And I was like, "That's no, it's like incredibly powerful stuff for removing what's extraneous from. It's very approachable for mm-hmm. for everybody, um, and just like in climbing, there's only a few ways that you can actually fail. Like in climbing Everest, it's like Falling, pulmonary edema, cerebral edema, dehydration, heart attack, crevasse fall. Uh, There's eight total ways to die. There was like (laughs) six of them right there. And if you can just not do those eight ways to die, you'll be there. Like there are infinite number of other paths to get up to the top. And I think it's the same with everything in our life. Like if you can just figure out where you, what's holding you, like what are your blocks, what's going wrong then you'll have infinite number of paths to actually get to where you're desiring to go. But learning to remove those things or, or handle them and get them out of the way. That's what essentialism taught. Just beautiful book. The other one is breathe and it's this bright yellow cover and it's all about breath work. It's all about how do you get yourself into the body? It covers things like this five two seven uh, breathing principle that we already talked about, but in a much more expanded way, um, how like early humanoids and neanderthals used to be way more in their bodies than us currently because they were not in their thinking brains as much Mm. which was actually a benefit to their physiology and now we're sort of uh devolving where like our teeth aren't aligned straight as a result of our crappy breathing like neanderthals uniformly had perfectly straight Teeth. teeth yeah and it's like as a result of us having this shallow top of our lungs breathing so this book shows how to get full belly breaths, um, circulate breathing to different parts of your body and how to control your breath for different states. Like there's Wim Hof breathing, there's Ujjayi breathing, there's 527 square breathing. Like so all these different styles of breathing, which three, four years ago I'd have been like, what the hell did that guy just say? (laughs) (laughs) I got introduced to breath work from mountaineering. It was just forcing myself to, or being forced, I should say, to take one step. And then control my breaths until i could calm down to be ready to take another step step. that was my intro to it and now it's like okay i'm gonna remove myself from the mountains live here right now and learn that breath work without without needing the external training wheels of climbing well done i I
1: don't know sometimes i think when i speak it belittles things people have said so I, i try to like give a little pause in my head. So I've, I've asked you, this anything that you wanted to get to. I'm wondering if, well, I guess we, let's do the obvious one. So somebody decides that they want to climb all seven summits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where do you, where do you start? I'm there's probably a book to start with that, but where do you go? If you, if you really wanted to consider doing it to get a grasp on what you would have to do in order to do it, where do you, where do you begin?
0: If it was a total beginner? Yeah. Okay. So I would, Gently encourage you to start with a USA mountain, like a 14,000 foot peak, maybe in Colorado or Mount Whitney or Mount Rainier, if you're feeling really ambitious. And the reason I say that is because lovingly, you don't know what you're saying. (laughs) You you don't (laughs) grasp (laughs) how freaking massive these mountains are. Like perspective. Rainier takes two nights for the standard way to climb it. You go up to camp, spend a day resting, you go up to the summit, and then you get yourself back down. It's two nights, three days. What about spending 16 days on a mountain like Denali, or 10 days on Kilimanjaro, or two months on Everest, or flying to Antarctica and seeing the plane fly off, and the only like rescue is yourself because the closest civilization is freaking McMurdo station, which isn't even civilization really. <laughs> and it's a thousand miles away across crevasse glaciers in minus 40 degree weather. Yes. Cool. You yeah. don't get what you're saying until you start small. So start with a mountain. That's like, like if it's, if it's interesting to you, like that thread from earlier, if it's, if it's something that's calling to you start, but don't start in a place that's going to put yourself at risk or others at risk, or put you in a situation where you're five days into a, three-week climb and you're going screw Oops. this i only want to be gone yeah
1: terrific want to be mindful of your time we're coming up on like an hour and a half so i'll give you one less anything else that you want to bring up or ask about or talk about before we head for the door
0: i would say that yeah i want to ask about what drives you to make this podcast
1: mm. yeah i'm going to say equal parts just like, oh my God, it's so cool. Like, I don't mean, mm. like, I objectively think it's awesome what I'm making, but like, I just love having conversations with people. And I occasionally go back and listen to the older episodes. Like one way for me to get out of a funk is to go listen to an older episode with mm. somebody that I really consider a good personal friend. And I'm just like, wow, I was, I mean, I think I sound like a fucking moron, but that was a really cool conversation. And I'm really like, I forgot those things that person said. So for me, the personal experience and enjoyment that I get out of it just so far, there's no end in sight. So I just do it because I freaking love having these conversations like right now in the moment with you, like that's the part I love. And then along the way, I've sort of developed um, an eye or an ear for how much crap there is out there, you know, just in, in, in the world in general, but in podcasting in general. And I don't mean like audio quality. I just mean people who are just talking heads. And when I get to talk to someone and I hear them say something and I'm just like, wow. Uh, I think it's really important that I just captured what John had to say and that I don't want to freak you out, but now it's immortal. Like, you know, it's going to be around you and I and somebody might listen to that. And that might be, you know, somebody hearing things that this person that I had a chance to talk to said that might change someone's life. So I'm just like, okay, now I'm starting to feel like that there is actually work that I'm doing here and there are other people doing it better than me. And I love the whole tech aspect of it. And I, that's kind of cool and all, but I really love the, the interpersonal technology aspect of it. Like how do you ask questions and how do you talk to other people and how do you figure out who that mind is on the other side of the world or the other side of the screen kind of thing. So that's, that's what drives me is that, that double pull of, Oh my God, I just love doing it. And The more i do it the more i'm just like whoa that was yet another really cool conversation that i'm think is a good thing that that's been captured so that's the the twofer for me
0: i think it's immense value that you bring and that's really a beautiful way of expressing it so (laughs) thanks for thanks for sharing that that's my question
1: Uh, cool all right well then i will just say uh as i say many times and of course the final question three words to describe your practice
0: presence courage and grit
1: Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure to finally get a chance to talk to you. And I suspect we may be talking again in the future. So thanks for taking the time and have a terrific day.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, Craig.